Amen. Would y'all pray with me? Father God, we ask it again. Because of Christ, Lord, would you bless us so that we would be a blessing upon the earth. Bless us, Lord, to the end that the nations would be glad and that they would sing for joy for you judge with equity and with justice. Which means um, that you will bring an answer. You will bring an answer, be it through your son uh, or through men uh, refusing your son and therefore bearing their own iniquity into eternity. God, you, you judge justly, which is great news for sinners that you will forgive us justly. So we thank you. We thank you for what you've done through the person of your son. Lord, we ask for great grace. Um, we ask for um, uh, we ask for instruction, Lord. I ask you for um, just guidance and balance today as I talk about something that's very needed but also touchy. So would you give me balance? Would you give us um, maybe a little bit uh, more lightheartedness this morning than, uh, than is normal as we think over your word? Um, but God, I pray that the time that we spend in your word would end um, in us better understanding who you are and how you have made us distinct as men and women, um, and that we would uh, progressively grow in endeavoring to bear your image as men and as women in our congregation. So would you take up uh, take up our time together and use it for our good and for your glory? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 31. And before we get there, just two housekeeping things. Number one, um, uh, much like I said with um, the last time I was out of the pulpit and Russ came and preached, um, I hope... Um, hope we as a congregation can appreciate um, the, um, the, the uh, what is that? Oh. Uh, I hope we can appreciate um, the depth of blessing that we have um, uh, in men that can, can divide God's word to build up the congregation. Uh, for those of you who weren't uh, here for Trey's uh, two sermons, you should go online. Uh, I, I uploaded the last one this morning. Um, the first one this morning. They're both online. Um, don't miss don't miss those. Um, I remember uh, we were a part of a church one time where the pastor is probably the most dynamic expositor of scripture I've ever been around. And so um, there's a story goes that a, another one of my pastors who was just a congregant at the time, um, on occasion, Tom would be out of the pulpit and somebody else would step in and people would skip because Tommy's not there. And so... Camilo called and he's like, you know, somebody picks up the phone. And he goes, hey, I just, you know, who's who's preaching today? And it was Tom Nelson. And he goes, get your butt to church. Boom, and hung up on him, which is great, right? Because sometimes we feel like uh, there's only like, you know, there's only truth that comes through the word through one particular person. And I love that God has demonstrated time and time again, um, just great grace through uh, through other men in the in the church. So Trey, thank you for bringing the word and, and building building us up. Secondly, uh, happy birthday, Mr. Lyons. We, we, laid, we laid hands and prayed uh, for Timmy after the service uh, birthday spankings. It'll be great. <laughs> okay. Uh, 
you guys have heard the story, I think, before, of uh, of an anthropologist who goes to um, who goes to Africa, and he's observing carefully this tribe that lives on the river on a river riverside in Africa. And as he's looking, as he's observing, he sees uh, basically everybody in the tribe is scarred or dismembered in some kind of way. Women are missing arms. Children are scarred, uh, limping around on fake legs. And he's kind of looking around trying to figure out, like, why, why is there so much dismemberment and scarring in this people group? Like, what's going on? So one day he's down by the riverside, and all the ladies are down there uh, doing, doing laundry. And they're, you know, with their uh, laundry, uh, whatever they call those things. And, he, and they're scrubbing. And all of a sudden, uh, exploding out of the muddy water is this Nile crocodile 15 foot long and he grabs this woman by the head and drags her into the river never to be seen again. And he says, whoa, like what, what's going on? And he starts screaming, crocodile. And one of the old ladies sidles up beside him and says, shh, we don't, we don't talk about crocodiles. You can't talk about crocodiles. It's very offensive to talk about crocodiles. This guy says, well, I want to talk about crocodiles because now I understand why everybody is dismembered. If we talk about crocodiles, we can actually protect ourselves. We can talk about like eradication of crocodiles, right? Or protection against crocodiles, but we have to speak about them if we're going to stop being dismembered by them. Well, that's a great metaphor for, in our culture, um, the, the gender wars, right? Um, most most churches don't want to touch um, topics of masculinity and femininity and glory and the differences and the wisdom and the beauty of God that he would create man in his image, male and female, and, and herald those things. Instead, we sort of like want to make sure that we could sign on the dotted line convict convictionally that we adhere to those things, but then we sort of apologize for them in the public sphere. Um, and so, so we don't want to talk about these things in the pulpit. We don't want to talk about these things in church. But as we look around in our culture, would you agree that there is deep, lasting soul wound going on in our culture because uh, we have this evil ideology, a satanic ideology called feminism that is nothing short of a war on men and a war on women and a war on the God who made them in his image? Um, we... We, we see millions of people slaughtered as a, as a ramification of the denial of man created in God's image. Um, there's, all of these, there's all of these wounds, right? We've, uh, we've seen progressively the, the idea of transgenderism impacting kids at a younger and younger age. We're now in public school. If you say you're a transgender kid, earliest of age, they'll put you on puberty blockers. They'll help you get gender reassignment surgery. They will hide your transgenderism from your parents so that when you show up going into school, they'll shut you off so your parents sees little Timmy going in. Not little Timmy because we have a Timmy here. Little whatever, some other name, going into school with his backpack and his short hair. And then the principal pulls him off to the side and gives him his dress and gives him his lady clothes. And every student in the, in the school is, is supposed to call him little Sally, refer to him as a her blocking puberty so that so that when the time comes he can get gender reassignment surgery um, people are being mauled by this ideology and for whatever reason um, 
we, we don't want to address it in the church. We don't want to talk about these things in the church because it might offend. And so um, I, it's been kind of a longstanding tradition, and now it's, I think, a really helpful thing that every Mother's Day I talk to our fathers, and every Father's Day I talk to our mothers, um, men in general, women in general, but particularly wives, particularly husbands, particularly mothers and fathers, grandparents, those types of things. And I'm doing this because, one, God's Word has much to say about the idea of biblical masculinity, of biblical femininity, and our culture is getting it wrong to the, de- to the, um, to the chagrin and to the death of millions. Um, and so, if we don't talk about it here, let me ask you, where shall we talk about it? Where shall we hear what God's Word has to say about masculinity and femininity. So, today, ladies, it's Father's Day, and so I'm going to address you from the Word. I preached on, on Mother's Day. I preached at the guys from uh, Proverbs 31, 1 through 9. Today, I'm going to teach you guys, you ladies, from uh, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Now, let me say, uh, the title of today's sermon is Poetry in Motion. And I named it that because a lot of ladies in particular, will come to this section of Scripture, and they will take it as a list of to-dos. And so instead of, they'll just mark out verse 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, and underneath they'll draw boxes, and then they go with their pencil and say like, do I do this? Check. Do I not do this? Dang it. Or whatever, right? And so they they view this as as a checklist, which is a, it's not a good way to view this. Let me show you, if you've got a a translation in the English Standard Version in front of you, look beside verse 10, and look beside the number 10. What do do you see there? Proverbs 12.4. Okay, so so you've got a cross-reference. In in mine, there's a a sub-note, there's the the number 4, and at the bottom it gives you a little bit of information about this text of Scripture. It says, verses 10 through 31, at the very bottom, are an acrostic poem. Each verse beginning with the successive letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Do y'all want to hear Casey sing the Hebrew alphabet? Sure. Yeah, come on. So this is, if you know, um, uh, uh, weekly assignment, go read the longest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 119. Every paragraph, every line of the first paragraph begins with the Hebrew word olive, and then the next is bait. It would be, it's a... The point is, this is what they do here. It's a song. It's a poem. It's not a, a checklist. It's it's God under the or it's uh, Lemuel's mama under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, glorying in this wife who is endeavoring to give herself to the building up of her husband, of her family, of her household, to the glory of God. And he's, she's not saying this is what every single woman needs to do. She's saying. This is beautiful, and she's glorying in it. And so that's what we want to do today. So it's not meant to crush you under the weight of things that you ought to be doing but are not. Rather, it's trying to help us all see how eternally powerful is a woman bearing God's image this way. You might say a woman fully alive. God knows, listen to me, God knows what women are for as the, um, as the author and maker of women, we ought to go to him and say, why did you do this? What are they for? And he has the right to say. Now, let me say something before we jump in. I'm not downplaying 
the glory of single, uh, single femininity or childlessness. I'm not saying those things don't matter. Please, please, please do not hear me say that. What I'm trying to, what I'm driving at today is that a woman who gives herself to glorify God by building her house is really the only aspect of femininity that is challenged in our culture. Okay? Uh, let me illustrate this. If you want to dye your hair purple, the, uh, the culture will applaud. But if a lady says, you know what, like my wife does on regular occasion, today I'm going to braid my hair because braids are my husband's favorite. That's how he loves to see my hair is braided. And so she braids her hair for my delight. And the culture will jump in and go, don't, don't use yourself for your husband. Like, you be you. Dye your hair purple so that you can stand out in a crowd and draw attention to yourself. Totally fine. But, but blessing your husband by the way you wear your hair? No. Uh, a, a lady who, who says that she wants to roid out and try and join the front lines and go into the Marines and fight on the front lines beside men. Uh, she will get only applause. But a woman who says, I'm exercising in order to attract a future husband or to delight my current husband, she will be shouted down by the culture. A woman who wants to be a man-eating CEO that runs the ship, calls all the shots, makes all the money, directs everything, the culture is going to love that woman and sing her praise. Only applause. But if she endeavors to be what Paul tells uh, Titus that women ought to be, which is an oikot despotane, a ruler in her home, a woman who endeavors to run her home to the glory of God, uh, managing a house for the glory of God, for the joy of her husband, for the long-term benefit of her kids, she's going to be shouted down. Why would you waste your life that way? A woman who wants to sacrifice her unborn baby to the God of career and, um, and money and ease and those kind of things, NPR will do specials on you and sing your praise. But walk into the store with more than the traditional 2.1 children in tow and you will be vilified. Why are you doing that? They will look at you like you're in the wrong, like somehow you're contributing to overpopulation when it is your God that is said, be fruitful and multiply. So your great glory, they think, is your shame. Okay, when a woman is chock full of all sorts of glory and gifts and skills, and she takes those things that God has given and bends everything she's got to bless her husband, bless her children, and bless her home for the glory of God, she has a fight on her hands. So please understand, I'm not trash-talking other avenues of femininity, be it singleness or be it uh, being in a career or anything like that. I'm just singing the praise of this type of courageous femininity. Okay, This is something that is vilified, and biblically speaking, it's one of the highest callings that you can imagine. Okay, you say this as well. There's a statement in some of the old Baptist documents about the church that they, they will say, a church rightly aligned according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. And then they say, and the, and the officers to be continued to the end of the age are these two, bishops or elders and deacons. These are the two church offices by our old Baptist documents that are just articulating what the Word of God teaches. So, 
A church rightly aligned according to the mind of Christ consists of officers and members. The officers are elders and deacons. So the, the phrase rightly aligned according to the mind of Christ implies that you could have a church that's not rightly aligned according to the mind of Christ, right? Which means that we need to be, as a church, consistently trying to realign ourselves according to the mind of Christ. It is the very same thing with marriage. You can have a marriage but that's not rightly aligned according to the mind of Christ. Um, and so, this is this is something that we need to get that we need to get right. Um, so there's good news before we dig in. One, it's never too late to believe what the Word of God says, to repent and obey. Okay, it's never too late. So I was thinking about men. Think about the spectrum of ladies that this text would speak to today we've got one that's in the back squealing uh that hannah's got the youngest of the ladies and then we've got we've got uh we've got some women who are who have just stepped into marriage women who are just about to step into marriage women are who are middle of the road we're halfway through this thing uh women who are on the on the back end and so there's all of this spectrum and i'm sensitive to the fact that that some might especially those who are midway, uh, so, so those that have been at it for a while, might look and say, man, I haven't done this well, and despair, okay? Please don't do that. So what I'm, what I'm praying for you this morning is that you would have the courage of conviction, not condemnation. Satan always wants you to feel condemned and defeated. You screwed it up, you're the worst, give up. That's what, where Satan wants you. If the Spirit of God is speaking to you through His Word, it's so that He can convict you, so that He can sanctify you. So listen to His voice and turn the condemnation off. It's not meant for condemnation. This is meant for coaching. So what I want to do is I want to show you, I'm not sure how many aspects of biblical femininity I pulled from, uh, from these texts. But we're not going to go verse by verse, just kind of big ideas as we watch King Lemuel's mama seeing the glories of biblical femininity and we will um, we'll think through these things together one last thing there was a guy in my church one time who was dressing up really fancy there was a church shindig and he dressed up really fancy shirt tucked in which was never a thing boots on polished his hair was combed and he was wearing cologne it was like a big big deal right and somebody said what are you uh, what are you doing why are you so why are you so dressed up? And he said, well, I'm going to the church uh, picnic. And he was like, well, okay, so why are you so dressed up? And he said, well, I'm looking for a P31. And they were like, what? Is that a car or is that a plane? Like, what are you talking about, a P31? And he goes, no, a Proverbs 31 woman. Like, I'm looking for this model this model of women. Somebody who looks like this. Listen, there's some silliness there. There is some silliness there. But there's also some immense wisdom. For a young man to say, I, I'm, I'm seeing godly women around in the church, and I want to find a, a spouse that looks like those ladies. Remember, this chapter, uh, verse 1, the words of King Lemuel, an oracle that his mother taught him. And she speaks to him first, and then she speaks to him about what kind of wife he ought to pursue. So, we should be, uh, if you are an unmarried guy, you should be all eyes uh, open here to find what uh, what kind of wife you should be looking for. So the first thing about this woman that I want you to see 
is that at the end of the day, most importantly, she is a God-fearing woman. Look in verse 10, and then we'll read verse 31. Verse 10. An excellent wife, who can find? She is more precious than jewels. Do you know why jewels are precious? What is the saying, a dime a dozen mean? It means you can find them everywhere. Do you find jewels everywhere? You can find pretty stones out there that are worthless. But an excellent wife, who can find, she is more precious than jewels. Verse 31. Uh, Charm is deceitful, beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. We're told at the beginning of the book of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. It is fools who despise wisdom and instruction. And so uh, we're told at the beginning, the fear of the Lord is the starting point. And it's no accident that at the very end, when we're talking about a godly woman, that the most important thing that this text says about her is that a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? What does it mean? To fear the Lord. It acknowledges the holiness of God, the judgment of God, the obligation that we have to God, the mercy of God, and then the fear that we have, acknowledging those things about God, that fear drives us to Him, to learn, to believe, to obey, as opposed to what our mother Eve did in the garden. Did God really say, yes, He did say that, but I'm going to trust my own judgment. I'm going to trust my own eyes. I'm going to trust some other counsel. She despised instruction, and there was no fear of God before her eyes. This, by the way, the capstone of the Apostle Paul's tirade in Romans 3, convincing us that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He mentions all of these things, the venom of asps there. No one is good, no, not one. They've all gone astray. All of these things, and the very last thing, as something that just seals it all off, is there is no fear of God before their eyes. We live in a land where there is very little fear of God in the eyes of many women and many men in our culture. And so if you would find an excellent wife who's very hard to find, you need to be looking for a lady who fears the Lord. A God-fearing woman is going to start with God. She's going to work from Him to understand everything else. And therefore, she's going to be rightly aligned to her creator, to her world, to herself, to her husband, to her family. This is why she needs to start with the fear of the Lord. So ladies, cultivate the fear of God in your heart and in your mind. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Secondly, she is a man maker. She is a man maker. This is very interesting. The the text on godly women starts in 10 and it ends in 31. What I noticed this week is at the beginning, middle, and end, there's something stated about her husband. Look Look in verse 10. An excellent wife who can find she's far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. Seems like a weird thing to say about a husband when you want to talk about wives. What is it about the husband not... Uh, When it says he will have no lack of gain, how does his wife participate in that? And rest assured, she participates in that. His heart trusts her, and he will have no lack of gain. Look in verse 23. Her husband is known in the gates. 
when he sits among the elders of the land. Um, the gates, in Old Testament, uh, in Old Testament worldview, the gates are Washington D.C., Wall Street, and all of the major news media rolled into one spot. It's the seat of authority, of political authority, in a, in a given town. It's the seat of um, it's the seat of economic transaction. Remember Boaz when he bought the field, he went to the gates. And it's also the seat of where you get your news and how uh, how people are to know one another and know what's going on. And it's the elders that gather there. The elders are seated. The younger guys stand in honor of them. And so this godly woman, it says about her husband that he's known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. So beginning, middle, at the end, her children rise up, verse 28, her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. So, this woman conducts herself in such a way that the men in her life are made more glorious. <coughs> um, we are told in Ephesians chapter 5 that when Christ loves his bride, when she was unlovable, she becomes more lovely. So, husbands, likewise, love your wives, especially when she's unlovable, and she will become more lovely. We're told the same thing about the way the church respects and honors Christ, that respect to men makes men more respectable. So let me say it this way. Ladies, a man a man's wife is his strongest recommendation or his biggest red flag. Can I tell you that again? It's a man's wife is his strongest recommendation or his biggest red flag. Listen to Proverbs 12. Proverbs 12:4. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. Think about that image. What does a crown do for a man? You got a king and you got a pauper. Let's pre let's pretend they're standing next to each other. The king is not wearing his crown. You say, well, who's the king and who's the who's the pauper? You might be able to tell by their garb, but other than that, there's not going to be anything that identifies one as king and one as peasant. But when the king wears his crown, that is what publicly announces him as royalty. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. She is a visible demonstration that this man is a man who's respectable, who's worthy of praise. She marks him out as a king among men. And it's an excellent wife that does that. However, it's not the end of the, song, the proverb. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. Think about that image. What is rottenness in one's bones? Bones are the rigidity of a man. What do we say when a guy lacks courage? We say he needs to grow a what? A spine. We, he needs to grow some backbone. He needs some rigidity about him. He's got, as, uh, as the man said, all the, all the rigidity of a bowl of pudding, right? He needs to grow a spine. He needs some rigidity. Well, a, a wife who brings shame is someone who eats away secretly at the rigidity, the strength of her husband. And so men quit standing when at home they're getting browbeaten by their wives and they walk around as henpecked men. Um, excellent wives are not automatic. So, so just because you're married it doesn't make it automatic that you have an excellent wife or that you are an excellent wife or a good husband or have an excellent husband. It's not an automatic. And so, ladies, 
Endeavor by God's grace to be your husband's public honor, not his unseen sapper of strength. Give you another proverb on this. Proverbs 14.1. The wisest of women builds her house, but folly with her own hands tears it down. Are you building your house? Are you building your husband? Or through folly and through pride, are you tearing him down secretly so that when the time comes and he needs to stand, he's been so torn down that he will not stand? She's a man maker. This lady is a man maker. Because of her love, because of her respect, because of the way she is, he is respected among the people of God. She is, thirdly, she's a home builder. A home builder. Look in verse 13. Let's read, uh, let's read all of this in one go. Verse 13. She, uh, verse 12. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax. Just pay attention to the birds. And she works with willing hands. She's like the ships of a merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night, provides food for her household, portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. I have in mind that she's probably not going to the gym and pumping iron to work on a six-pack. It's probably the strength, the freakish strength that some of the ladies have in our day. When you hand Lydia, who's just dead weight baby, in your arms, and the dude's like, in a pretty short order, their arms are shaking, we got to pass them on, and the ladies can hold him with one arm forever. Because she's girded herself with strength. She makes her arms strong. Perceives, she perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hand holds a spindle, she opens her hand to the poor, reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household. For all her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Verse 24, she makes linen garments, sells them, delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are clothing. She laughs at the time to come. Opens her mouth of wisdom, teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. She is a home builder. Let me say this um, because there's a, there's a critique of people who believe what the Bible says about masculinity and femininity, and they will say, well, you just are among the cavemen, patriarchal, old guard that would, that would say a woman's place is in the home. So let me say, that's not, what, that's not what this text says, and that's not what the scriptures say. But the scriptures do say not that a woman's place is in the home, but that a wife's priorities are her home and what goes on there. This is Titus 2. Would you turn with me to Titus 2 briefly? Titus chapter 2, where Paul uh, speaks about these things directly. Titus chapter 2, verse 3. Um, if you can't get there that quick, that's okay. Just, just follow along. Older women likewise... Um, which incidentally doesn't ever apply to any women ever because nobody wants to acknowledge being old. And so um, this is just a verse to nobody. But older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slave to much wine. So that's what they're not to do. This is the positive that they are to do. They are to teach what is good and train young women. So older women are to teach and train younger women. What are they to teach and train? 
Well, you're teaching, training younger women to, one, love their husbands and their children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands so that the word of God may not be reviled. So her place is not necessarily the home, but her priorities are there. It's very interesting to me that Paul says, even back in, um, in first century uh, Turkey, first century Israel, he says that young women need to be trained to love their husbands, love their children, and to work at home. If that's true way back then, how much more true does it have to be in our day where we have canned all of this idea? So Paul says she's to, her priorities are the home. This woman, back in Proverbs 31, she's working extremely hard. Would you agree with that? The whole thing is just scattered throughout with things that she's doing. But all of them are homeward, even the ones that are outside the home. Considering a field, buying it, uh, with the fruit of her hand, she plants a vineyard. She's doing all of these things, but she's doing them to bless, to bless her own home. So, um, it's, it's hard work, but it's homeward work. So beware, ladies, of distractions that would take you away from your chief priorities. It's not to say that you can't do other things. You absolutely can. But there is a warning here. It happens with men as well. We're saddled with a lot of different responsibilities to provide, to protect, to disciple our, our families. And typically... Um, if you men are anything like me, I feel wonderfully inadequate to train up my children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. And so it's easier for me to just go lean into the provision aspect of things and just work and work and work and work and just do really well at this because I'm not so great at this. And I think the same temptation is true for ladies, that the priority is to be in the home. And sometimes that's overwhelming. And so it's easy to allow distractions to come on and to take your time away um, to go sell Avon instead of uh, dealing with the things that, uh, that you need to deal with at home. Not that Avon is sinful or anything like that, but your priority ought to be uh, your home. So when we don't know our priorities, then it is impossible for us to evaluate our efforts. We may be doing a million things, but until we establish what does God say my priorities are to be, we cannot evaluate all of the efforts that we're engaged in. She's a God-fearer, a man-maker, a home-builder, uh, next, a producer, a producer. It's amazing to me how our culture continually marginalizes women who are this way. Um, this woman, by the fruit of her hands, mentions, uh, give her of the fruit of her hands, let her works praise her in the gates. By the fruit of her hands, she is building nothing short of eternity, and she's building it through her home. And yet some American jackwad will say, yeah, but why doesn't she go get a real job? Why would you have left the workforce when you could have made all of that money and given it all away? Why did you lay aside that so that you could come home and make babies and help parent them and train them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord? And there's this bizarre, bizarre uh, value system that's crept even into the church where, where people in the church will value a CEO lady over a stay-at-home mom who's giving herself uh, for her for her wives and for her children. This lady is staying up late. She's waking up early. 
she's getting the freak after it. But since it's all homeward, our culture would marginalize it. Well, ladies, God prizes this type of woman above immeasurable wealth. Verse 10. She is kind of a little more precious than jewels. What? She is far more precious than jewels. She's far more precious than the economy of the day. So, uh, we're told in, in 1 Peter, a gentle and quiet spirit which, uh, about a feminine, uh, a, a woman in Christ, a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, we will all stand before Christ and give some account of our life. Some women will have piles of paper money with, as Eli pointed out, two signatures on them. Two signatures. Like the, the, the treasurer and then the, what was the other guy? He was just, he wasn't glorying that. He was just like, this is weird. Why are there two signatures on paper money? That will mean nothing when you see Christ. Nothing at all. For men or for women. Piles of cash. Versus piles of souls that you poured yourself into. And they, because they saw your example, pour themselves into the next generation. Where are our priorities? Listen, some matter and some do not. Okay? Some women will have generation of, of souls that were nursed up in the Lord by their very own hands. By the way, I would pull into... Um, an Old Testament text that talks about in the coming kingdom, in the new covenant, uh, it talks about God gives hope to the eunuch, to someone who cannot have children. And he says, in the new covenant, that eunuch will be more fruitful than a father with a huge family. Why? Because a eunuch that doesn't have a baby can lead people to Christ and disciple them up. So we're not just talking about physical birth. We're talking about people who give themselves to the kingdom of God. So... She's a producer, God-fearer, man-maker, home-builder, producer. She's a caregiver. This is glorious. Look in verse 20, 20 and 21. She opens her hand. By the way, read this at home and note all the times that the lady's hands are mentioned. Her hands are busy doing glorious things. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hand to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for all of her household are clothed in scarlet. She is a caregiver. She reaches out to the poor. She provides warmth for her household, including when we think of a household as an American idea, we think of well, what is your household? You think of husband, wife, hopefully. Hopefully we're not uh, so far gone that gay mirage or uh, you know, so-called homosexual marriage is, is a thing that you would count a household that doesn't exist we're talking about man, women, and we think of husband, wife, and children as a household. Well, here, a household is much bigger than that. It's husband, wife, children. It's also grandchildren. It's also parents. It's also the economy that you've created with your household, people that are employed in your household. So think about Abraham when he goes to rescue Lot. He takes 318 fighting men in his household that were born in his household. It's got to be an enormous household for him to go to war with just the people in his house. And all of them are part of his household. So she opens her hand to the poor, but she's also not afraid for her household. They're all clothed in double thick garments. So she's a caregiver. 
this we we've seen this right uh not to put anybody on the spot but we've seen sacrifices made by people in the church as they look at older aging family members that's hard and and expensive and emotionally draining but instead of saying look we'll take the money that we're gonna that we're gonna need to buy this place revamp it um and then sustain life there for our aging parent maybe we should just take this uh take this money and just stick our parent in the um, in the nursing home and let professionals care for them. And we watched as a congregation, an A-frame being purchased, an A-frame being uh, rebuilt, and then the dad cared for there, right? That's what she's for. That's, that's a glorious thing. And this woman does that. She opens her hand. She cares for her household. The coolest stories, Lewis, uh, Lewis Schaefer, not Lewis Schaefer, Francis Schaefer, different guy. Francis Schaefer's wife, uh, it's really cool. Other cool people live on the railroad tracks, apparently. And um, and so they lived on the railroad tracks, and they would get hobos coming to their door. They would knock and ask for a handout. And she would say, uh, please have a seat on the porch. Make yourself comfortable. And instead of going in and getting leftovers or just getting something to say kind of get out, uh, she would come and she would make a sandwich, this really nice gourmet sandwich, and she would cut it diagonally like um, only civilized people do she wouldn't do savage barbarian things like cutting it in half north and south that's ridiculous but she would put it on a plate and she would put it on a tray and she would put coffee and she would put a drink and she would put a vase and she would put a flower and she would put silverware in a napkin that's folded up nice and she would bring him the, this vagabond bring him the tray and ask why would you do that well because i don't know when this guy is ever going to get a decent meal again and so if i'm going to help why would i not Use hospitality, my gift of hospitality, to bless such a one. In the book of Hebrews, it tells us that she might just have brought a really delicious diagonally cut sandwich to angels without knowing. Like, she gave herself to the poor, to the, to the, to the building of the poor. This, by the way, is such a shame in our, in our country because since the government endeavors to provide for the poor, sometimes we as the church say, well, somebody else has got the stick. Would that the government would stop doing that so that the church could take a rightful place as the institution that provides for and protects the poor. We can do a much better job than the government can, I can promise you. She's a beauty spreader. Look in verse 21. She's not afraid of snow. For her household are clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Those are royal colors. And, and it's, it's clothes that exist for comfort and for beauty, not just practicality. I'm clothed. She is a, she's a maker and a spreader of beauty. Keep reading in verse 24. She makes linen garments and sells them, delivers sashes to the merchant. These are items that she can sell. They're profitable. Strength and dignity are our clothing. She laughs at the time to come. She's not worried about the future. Listen to this, verse 26. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. This idea of like that, that jumped off the page this week as I was studying. The teaching of kindness. What does that mean? That when she opens her mouth, she her lips are dripping wisdom and the teaching of kindness. Well, to blow your mind here. 
The word for kindness is the Hebrew word chesed, which is what God, when God hides Moses in the rock, covers him, and God, the Lord preaches the Lord. And he says, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in chesed vehemet. Sorry, you spit when you say it. Chesed vehemet. Loving kindness and faithfulness. The chesed of God is the most treasured characteristic of God when you're talking about His covenant-keeping love that He does not ever give up on His people even when they go wayward. He pursues them with love. He pursues them with mercy. And He draws them back to Himself. And this lady, when she opens her mouth to talk to who? Her husband, her children, her church. When she's an older lady training younger ladies, she opens her mouth, she spreads wisdom, which would be the fear of the Lord, beginning with the fear of the Lord, and she spreads the teaching of kindness. She spreads a love for the everlasting love of God, the covenant-keeping love of the Lord. She spreads physical beauty, and she spreads the beauty of God's character to her people. She is a beauty spreader. Two more things, and I won't take long. She is completely unafraid of the future. Look in verse 25. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. We are a nation of fretters and fears. What's coming down the pipe? And we try and prepare as best we can about the threats that we see coming. And nine times out of ten, those threats never come and different ones come that we're unprepared for. This lady trusts the Lord. She fears the Lord. She works hard. She's very skilled. And because she trusts in a sovereign God and because she works hard and prioritizes her life according to the Word of God, she can laugh at the days to come. What is the worst that could possibly happen? Let me ask you, Christian lady, what is the worst that could possibly happen? Death? Who cares? Who cares? Yes, it's going to be painful. Yes, it's going to stink. But there is resurrection. So she can look theologically, practically at the future. And she can look at all the myriad of what ifs and all of those things. And she can belly laugh at them because God has got it. And she's unafraid. Lastly, she is, in every sense of the word, worthy of praise. Look in verse 28. Her children... Rise up and call her blessed. This is so fantastic, right? When your kids are little, this is awesome. Lucy, excuse me, Lydia, is going to say dada before she says mama. Isn't that great? Like, I didn't bake her in my belly. I didn't, through very great trial and tribulation, bring her forth into the world. I don't wake up with her and feed her with my own body night after night. I don't fret over when she, is she gassy? Is she hurting? Is she teething? Like, that's not my job. And yet, for whatever reason, she's probably, if she's like our other children, she's going to say, Dad, Dad, before she says Mama. And I'm going to laugh. And it's going to be glorious. <laughs> right now, I, I'm tempted to just ask you to try it. When Gracie tries to kiss Lydia... Lydia can't even return the kiss. Do you know what it looks like? It looks like a weird, bad French kiss. She just <laughs> comes out with slobber and drool. She can't say thank you. She can't say, you've done a great job with me. 
And she probably won't until she moves out. And then, when she gets married, when she has kids of her own, and she looks back and goes, Dad gum, look at what my mom did every day of my life when she prioritized me, loved me, counted herself less significant than me, and poured her life and soul into me for the glory of God. They will rise up and call their mother blessed. And her husband also, he will praise her. He will say, I love this. This is glorious. Many women have done excellently. We'll acknowledge there are other good wives out there. But Gracie is the best. You surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. Which are the two things that cause young men to get married to particular women. She's charming. She's beautiful. Lemuel tells us that his mama told him, Charm is deceitful. Beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. I don't know if y'all caught that, but how many times is she being praised in this at the very end? Her children rise up, call her blessed, her husband also, he praises her. You've, you surpass them all, charms, deceitful, beauty is vain. A woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the gates. She is, in no uncertain terms, worthy of praise because nobody's twisted her arm, but she, in covenant faithfulness to Christ, because he calls her to do so, she gladly pours herself out for the good of others like Jesus does when he counts others more significant than himself. Three things and then I'm done. One, wives. Adorning the gospel in your marriage means focusing your life around making your husband and your household reek of the presence and the person of Christ. Let me say that again. Adorning the gospel in marriage means focusing your life around making your husband, your household, reek of the person and the presence of Christ. Bend all your gifting and all your endeavors to this end. Fear the Lord and give yourself to this endeavor. See to the atmosphere of your home and may it smell like Christ. Two, wives, Christ is your forgiveness if you're feeling like you've fallen short. And, more than that, He is your power when you want to endeavor to change things. So can I offer a suggestion? Some of you doubtless look at this and go, got it, pat on the back, let's go to Luby's. Some of you might feel like, man, that's a high standard. So start with repenting to God, with whatever you feel like you failed at. Follow it up with acknowledging to your husband, if you feel that's appropriate, or your household, the things that you would like to change. And then pick one concrete thing to focus on. And prayerfully walk with your head up. God will take you from where you are and get you where you need to be. He won't say, well, you're not where you are supposed to be, and so I can't help you. He will take you from where, wherever you are, and he will walk with you to get there, and it's never too late to try. Third and last, for the church. We can learn to see ourselves as existing in the world for the glory of Jesus. How we live, what we say, the way we work, everything we do, it points to the glory of our covenant head, or it doesn't. We can be his excellent bride that's like a crown to his head, 
demonstrating that Christ is altogether lovely, or we can be the one who brings the wife and brings shame to our covenant head, and it won't be like rottenness in his bones. The shame will just reside with us. So will we be his crown as a church, as a covenant people, or will we bring shame? May God make it the former, not the latter. As we come to the Lord's table, it's fitting for us to lean into our corporateness and not our individuality. We do not lose ourselves when we come to Christ. Rather, we find ourselves. But we find ourselves in context of connectedness to his body. Okay, let me illustrate. Outside of Christ, you may have been just a severed hand lying around, all alone. In Christ, you, you are given, a, connected to an arm that can move you about, and another hand to help you grasp, and so on. So in Christ, you're given yourself as you are meant to be. And this means that in Christ, we are given both ability and obligation. Ability through His Spirit and through the body of Christ to do what we could never do on our own. Right? A severed hand can do nothing but lay there pathetically. But if that same hand were sewn onto a living, strong arm, which is connected to a tender heart and a sharp mind and swift feet, that hand can become nearly limitless in what she can do. And that's all of us. Severed from the body of Christ, we can do nothing. But connected to and abiding in Him, we can do much indeed. We are meant to come to this table corporately as the bride of Christ. Coming to this table together is a participation in His body together, which brings Him great glory. So come, remembering His body broken for you, His blood shed for you. Come remembering Christ who saved you as an individual from your sin and saved you into His corporate bride, the church. Come remembering Come rejoicing. Come making Jesus look good. Come welcome to Christ. Let me pray for us. Lord Jesus, we thank you for loving us while we were unlovable. For demonstrating the love of God for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ, you died for us. You loved us when we were unlovable and by your love, you sanctified us, you purified us, and you present us back to yourself in glory and in splendor without spot or wrinkle or stain. And so we can come to you as a bride dressed in righteousness, your righteousness that you gave to us. And by clothing ourselves in all that you are, we demonstrate and display your glory. So God, we come to this table again and again in remembrance of what you have done for us in Christ. And we ask you, Holy Spirit, to come and to minister to us the benefits that Christ bought on the cross. And we ask it in his name. Amen.